We're talking about Kinder Morgan on this week's Behind the Idea. The former dividend investor favorite, an energy infrastructure company, is back on the rise, and we're trying to figure out if anything has changed from a few years ago. One of the things we look at is the persistence of the theme that Kinder Morgan is not so exposed to underlying commodity prices, a point Mike unpacks. Kinder Morgan is exposed to that because that means that if those operations shut down, then that oil is no longer flowing through the pipelines. And that's the source of all of Kinder Morgan's revenue. So I think just from a kind of economic theoretical perspective, the narrative doesn't make complete sense. I wonder why investors are okay taking Kinder Morgan's presented non-GAAP metrics at face value. And I guess I'm just a little offended that people still use these metrics at face value because you don't even have to remember Valiant or Lynn Energy in the same space. We can just go to Kinder Morgan itself. We recorded this podcast on April 12th, which was before Kinder Morgan released earnings and increased their dividend by 25% on April 17th. But as the company continues its comeback story from the oil crash period of 2014 to 2016, the question remains, have we learned anything from last time around? Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. Today we're talking about a former dividend battleground that is on the comeback trail. Kinder Morgan, ticker symbol KMI. KMI was a battleground going into 2014 and 15 when the company cut its dividend drastically and sold off nearly 75%. The company has been the subject of recent bullish coverage from several recent Seeking Alpha articles, but comments remind the authors of the history with the company. We decided to take a recent investor presentation from the company as a launching point to try to understand why the structure is so complex and whether investors have learned lessons from the last cycle. Before we begin, Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to understand what makes great investment analysis work. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. Neither Mike nor I have any positions in any of the stocks we plan to discuss. We'll get going in a second, but first a quick word from our sponsor, Oppenheimer Funds. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. I'm your host, Manita Huja. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Okay, Mike, I want to start with one of the cliches around Kinder Morgan, and you've done some work on this, so I want to get to that. But one of the things that people, Kinder Morgan is a, it's a energy infrastructure company. They produce a little bit of oil, I believe, but their biggest, they're, they're known as a pipeline company. They get oil from point A to point B. And one of the things that comes up a lot is in the analysis on the company or the reports on the company is the idea that the business model that Kinder Morgan employs has very little exposure to commodity price fluctuations. That stood out for both of us. We've both done a little bit of work on it. I can go into some of the financials, but you did some more deep dive analysis here. So what did you find as far as this sort of relationship between Kinder Morgan and the fundamental oil and gas commodities that that go through its pipelines? 
So I looked at, I did a couple things. The first thing I did was go on portfoliovisualizer.com, which is no relationship with Seeking Alpha, but this is a helpful tool for getting some gut check ideas about how different investments are interrelated with each other. And I just punched in the cor- correlation analysis between Kinder Morgan, the UNG ETF, and OIL ETFs to get just a broad sense of how correlated or uncorrelated Kinder Morgan is with these underlying commodities. So UNG representing natural gas and OIL representing oil. And from 2016 about to today, which is when Portfolio Visualizer has the data, they register about a 40% correlation between Kinder Morgan and oil prices and a very, very low, closer to zero correlation between Kinder Morgan and natural gas prices. So I think that tells us something right off the bat, which is the narrative that Kinder Morgan is completely insulated from commodities prices is not really the whole story. A 40% correlation or a 0.4 correlation between Kinder Morgan and oil prices is not a super strong correlation, but it's a positive correlation and it matters. So I think that was the first signal that we might want to sort of sound a note of caution on this. Then the second thing I did was I looked at one thing about correlations between assets is they can change over time. And particularly as we saw, you know, during the financial crisis, for example, uh, a lot of correlations tend to spike when there's a shock, meaning that when when things are going down, there are fewer places to hide and diversification has fewer benefits. So I looked at the rolling correlations between oil and Kinder Morgan, and I found the same long-term correlation of about 0.4 between Kinder Morgan and West Texas Intermediate Crude. And it did fluctuate over time. So the correlation starting in 2011 hovered around the 0.4 average. Uh, Then it dipped down to close to zero from for much of 2013. And then it spiked in 2015 to 2016. The 20 day correlation got as high as 0.9. And for a few months there was kind of in the 0.6 area. And then it backed off again and is kind of hovering more around the 0.4 area. So I think people need to keep in mind that depending on the economic dynamics at play, first of all, there is a positive correlation between Kinder Morgan stock price and oil prices that's observable over the long term. The base rate is not zero. So any sort of rhetoric around full insulation from the oil markets just isn't really valid. It is partially insulated, but not fully. And then during certain periods, the rolling correlation between oil and Kinder Morgan can get high where to the point where over a three-month period, more than 60% of the price movements in Kinder Morgan can be explained by oil prices. So I think there's just, from a sort of basic quantitative perspective, there's a reason to be more cautious. And 
we shouldn't think of these things in terms of absolutes, whether Kinder Morgan is exposed to oil prices or not exposed to oil prices, because the actual answer is really somewhere in between. And during certain times, the correlations are really meaningful. Okay, so let's let's try to sort of get into that a little bit too, because the the correlations that you pulled are really meaningful, I think. But then when you well, let's go a little bit further and then try to think about why this is. So first of all, I just pulled up on the 10K the last five years selected financial data. Revenue dropped 20% from 2014 to 2016. It's still down from 2014 as of last year by 13%, which is meaningful. Operating income has been relatively steady. Net income did a bit of a U where it went from 2014. It kind of dipped down quite a bit. There was a big dividend cut that played out over the course of 2016. I believe it was announced or became inevitable in 2015. And, you know, and then it's kind of picked back up in the last year. EPS was a little bit stronger. But, you know, their business is pipelines. And I think you, one another cliche that you hear a lot, and I don't know if we have any stock market cliche bots available, but the one thing that you hear a lot is go find the people selling the picks and shovels, right? Which is the idea of you don't need to pick the winner in the gold mining space. You just know that people will be mining. And so if you're selling those picks and shovels, the demand will be there. But that assumes that there's demand for the gold price and that there's still gold in the hills that they're going to be able to mine. And in the oil and gas case, there is this sort of another part of the thesis that you hear with the pipeline companies is just the rise in U.S. production. And I don't think anybody's really doubting that at this stage. U.S. production of oil and gas is likely to continue to rise. But that still doesn't – that's still the, – the, the price that their profit margins ultimately matter and their incentives to drill for oil based on the oil price matter. And so – I don't know. Those are those are the first sort of actual things that would seem to be driving this connection that people seem to di- diminish. And I think that comes from the company and their presentations, but they seem to downplay. What what else do you think or what do you make of that? What else do you think it might be going on to, to forge this relationship between a company like Kinder Morgan and the oil and gas prices? Uh, I'll get to that in a second. But first, yeah, uh, the market cliche bot is here. He woke up from his little slumber, you activated him much as an, an Alexa device is activated. <laughs> oh, yeah, good. So, oh um, good, good. I so didn't know here, here he way. comes, and uh, yeah, he, he does have something to say. So what's that market cliche bot? Picks and shovels. So as a reminder to all all our listeners, the market cliche bot rolls out when we drop a market cliche, repeats the market cliche, and then self-destructs. So uh, thank you, market market cliche bot. But anyway, let's get to, so correlations. So yeah, some of the things that jump out at me, I one, one reaction I have, and I guess we'll get into the presentation itself a little bit, but one thing is it's an... I don't know if you can have it both ways as Kinder Morgan management when you're talking to investors that to say 
and demand for oil and natural gas and energy is looking really rosy going in the future. And then also and say that that's good for investors. And then at the same time say, but we're we're just toll collectors and we're insulated from fluctuations in commodity prices. To me, there's a little bit of a, I think the flow of the product through the pipelines is related to supply and demand dynamics, which are related to price. So I don't, I sort of question the ability to have it both ways where you say, well, we're insulated from oil and commodity prices, but look at all this upside that's available because demand for oil is going to be so substantial going forward. That's my first, it's kind of like, can you really have that both ways? And maybe the answer is that, well, the correlation is weak, but it's positive. And so maybe that's kind of where quantitatively the narrative kind of interweaves between those, you know, correlation is 0.4. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's there. That's where the upside is, but it's not, it's not close to a hundred percent. So there is some protection available, but I kind of, I'm not completely on board with that narrative. I think neither of us are. And for the record, on there, when you go to the appendix of their, we're, we're reviewing a presentation that they presented at Barclays Conference in early March, and slide 22, which is, their appendix starts early. This is a 52 slide deck, and the appendix is about slide 21. Energy toll road, cash flow security with 90% of revenue, I presume, from take or pay and other fee-based contracts. And so that's something that they promote, but we've seen that their revenue still has quite a bit of, you know, and we're not, we're not, I think we're both open to being blasted for not going down each line of their income statement or their balance sheet or anything else in this podcast, but they have clearly shown some potential there, there's a wide band of what their revenue might be so anyway i just wanted to call out that from the presentation as a specific thing like it's not just a cliche they're actually still presenting this to investors as the way to think about their company yeah and so i think that that brings me to my second and probably final point on this picks and shovels cliche and the level of protection that kinder morgan investors may or may not have against commodity price fluctuations. And that's kind of the experience that we had in the shale crash from, you know, 20, late 2014, I think, to into 2016. Oil prices did drop substantially. And we see that the they crashed kind of in, yeah, late 2014, early 15, and then stayed low for a long time throughout 2015. And that was the time when the return correlations between Kinder Morgan and WTI crude were above average, they were higher. So that's a note of caution, first of all, just that the correlations may increase at the wrong times for you. And I think we saw that a little bit with Kinder Morgan having some difficulties during the shale crash. It also kind of, there's a theoretical explanation for this, which is when there's plenty of end demand for crude, then the more marginal producers come online, higher crude oil prices support more difficult exploration and drilling activities for oil because 
uh, you can afford to take additional risk. If the price of oil is higher, then you'll still make out in the end. It's still profitable to do more difficult drilling. So we saw that in the shale boom, all these sort of risky ventures got funded by debt and capital seeking high returns. The oil prices supported it. It was profitable to do these things. And then suddenly when the commodity price collapsed, a lot of those operations had to be taken offline because the companies were going bankrupt and going out of business, having really difficult times sort of staying afloat because they couldn't profitably extract oil. Kinder Morgan is exposed to that because that means that if those operations shut down, then that oil is no longer flowing through the pipelines. And that's the source of all of Kinder Morgan's revenue. So I think just from a kind of economic theoretical perspective, the narrative doesn't make complete sense. It is contingent on a kind of bull market in at least growth or continued operation of the pipelines, at least at levels that we currently see is somewhat contingent on at least stability and probably rising prices in oil. So not only we have this sort of quantitative empirical evidence suggesting that Kinder Morgan is not completely safe from oil prices. We also have this kind of theoretical intuition around it that also helps explain the story. So that to me, I kind of come down on the side of not really agreeing with the management narrative here and thinking more along the lines of, okay, this is actually something that has some meaningful exposure to oil prices. And I think that the stability, you run the risk of seeing that overstated from a longer term perspective, because we've seen in the past that during a crash in the oil prices, you know, Kinder Morgan does have have faced some real challenges. Well, and just maybe to add one more thing here is that I almost wonder if this story that Kinder Morgan tells itself and then tells its investors is its Achilles heel or it's that's not quite the right term, but uh, the they've they've got a really rough balance sheet still it's better i presume than it was at the time of the dividend cut and everything else but they're really levered and i think you lever up because you would expect that this is some sort of stable business where you put the pipes in the ground and then you just got to turn them on and then energy demand will stay there and it'll keep flowing and so that sort of business becomes attractive to borrow against and then it's sort of a roll up story i one of the you know one of the sources that we reviewed that i found really helpful in this endeavor was an old article from 2015 by an author on seeking alpha bumbershoot holdings and i thought they actually used icarus as your greek myth as comparison but just it's a good we'll, we'll link to it in the article it's a good good piece to look at as trying to understand how this was built from just a more generalist financial perspective. But I think that the temptation to say that this is a steady business and the need to to believe it then leads you to some incentives around like, let's lever up because this is a steady business and why shouldn't we? I, I don't know. I just, I think that's something that seems to be at play here. And so as we talk about this, it's not even just this abstract narrative that the company is telling. It also affects how they're running the the business itself. Uh, yeah, to add to our pile of market cliches, first of all, I think that 
Icarus and Achilles are probably, they don't quite rise to the level of uh, market cliche. They might just be general cliches, but that's, that's a wide. They're pretty wide. Yeah. I would say so, they're wider yeah, cliches. The, the yeah. robot's not right. activated. So I think that's a good indicator. But another one is to quote Charlie Munger and the, I'm going to deactivate the market cliche bot for that so that we don't have another explosion <laughs> in here. But he gave a talk on, you know, cognitive biases in investor psychology, which is something that we like to talk about when we can. And one of the things that he mentions is consistency bias, commitment bias. And those that's the tendency for people to believe things if if they repeat them and especially if they repeat them in public. And to your point about management sort of locking itself in by painting this narrative to investors, I think that there's a risk. Anytime management sort of seems to be overly focused on the shareholder transaction or talking to shareholders and presenting the business case in terms of the shareholder transaction element, the buyback, the dividend, the cash flow that can be distributed to shareholders. It's okay to want to be shareholder friendly, but I think when you start structuring your whole business narrative around your transaction with shareholders, you can run this risk of starting to believe more strongly that that's the top priority. When in fact, I think most successful businesses are much more focused operating businesses, at least, are much more focused on actually, okay, how are we going to accomplish our business objectives? What what activities are we going to do with our customers and with our suppliers to sort of generate outcomes? And then if we do that well, then the shareholder facing side of it kind of comes comes naturally. And we'll just have, we'll be in a good position to make good decisions for our shareholders. But I think if you, if you go the other way around, the other company I'm thinking of is Realty Income that kind of has this investor facing thing. And no, no comments on where Realty Income is now, but they, you know, on their webpage, they say the monthly dividend company. I kind of personally get real nervous when I start seeing companies that are kind of so transparently focused outwardly towards speaking to shareholders primarily, because I think as a manager, your focus probably ought to be on helping your customers, negotiating with your suppliers and actually operating the business, doing operating transactions, operating activities, not shareholder transactions. Those come second. So I think you, this might be a case, like you said, where they're sort of eating their own dog food a little too much. They're buying into their own rhetoric a little too much. And it may have locked them into this cycle where now shareholders have come along with them. They believe it, but there may be some real holes underlying the whole thing. Eating their own dog food, huh? I like that. I think that typically is sort of not a stock market cliche, but maybe a tech entrepreneurship cliche where you look too much at your product and interact with it too much but whatever. Yeah. Isn't that fair? I think that's fair. That's fair enough. Uh, so I want to get into, I think realty is an interesting place to go to the next thing that, or one of the other things I want to hit. Uh, 
Before we do, I want to stop to give Oppenheimer Funds another chance, quick word about their podcast, Megatrends. Hey, everyone. I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds called Megatrends. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends explores and explains those opportunities. I'm your host, Manita Huja. I'm an award-winning business journalist and author. Tune in to hear me talk to the experts about thinking globally when it comes to investing. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Okay, back to Kinder Morgan. So the what I Kinder Morgan, I'm just looking at their the first page of their 10K after you get to the, you know, when you're looking at it on Edgar, after you get the the table of contents. And they've got this glossary and they've got all these different Kinder Morgan Energy Partners, Kinder Morgan GP, Kinder Morgan Inc., Kinder Morgan Canada Limited, which KML comes up quite a bit in their their presentation. And there there are way more. There there are lots of abbreviations, uh, lots of acronyms, lots of stuff in here. Lots of Wyco. Shout to Wyco researcher. <laughs> probably no. Probably no. Probably no relation. Uh, it looks like 20 or 25, somewhere in that range of these abri- company abbreviations. And it's on the first page. Yeah. So go ahead. Anyway, there's a lot of these. What does that mean to you? Well, just, I, I think about the, the, with the REITs, right. With where in business development companies, I own shares in a couple of them and I've owned REITs in the past to, and own one and have had some success and some failure, some big failures, but the like they're sort of structured as investment entities is like there's a weird thing about them because the whole thing is about how they're they're tax advantaged and i guess that's the which is sort of the answer to the question i'm going to pose but i just wonder why this is just a pipeline business it doesn't necessarily have to be complex right you put pipes in the ground you try to get oil going from one end to the other like there's not it's not super complicated how this business should work, but you have all these different things. I know Kinder Morgan, they had mergers leading into the crash in 2015-16. They like collapsed some of their entities together. But I think about that because the metrics here, and so I guess I have a two-part question that I'll try to be quick to get to. The metrics on the presentation and then that get repeated in a lot of the articles are not standard, right? They use DCF, distributable cash flow, and EBITDA, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization. And I guess I'm just a little offended that people still use these metrics at face value because you don't even have to remember Valiant or Lynn Energy in the same space or other companies that have had sort of catastrophic falls after using non-GAAP or special adjusted sort of numbers, Kraft Heinz even more recently, like we can just go to Kinder Morgan itself. And I don't, I'm not saying that that was, I don't know that that was approximate cause for anything, but like distributable cash flow, they, they add a bunch of stuff. We were talking, when we were preparing for this, we were talking about certain items. They have this thing called certain items and we're not certain what they are, but they add all this stuff More back. More like uncertain items. <laughs> oh. Hey. They, they they keep adding stuff back in. It's essentially a funky form of EBITDA, which doesn't make sense to me because the pipelines, there's a lot of CapEx here and the DA 
does matter and the interest matters because you're built you're you've got all this debt and so i'm just you know i i have I, like i said i have reits in my portfolio at different times and i i think like why not just use free cash flow why does it have to be so complex i guess that that's the question i have and I kind of got at it from a few years. But why, why do you think that there's so much complexity around a company like Kinder Morgan when it's really just a, you know, an infrastructure company, a company that connects A to B that kind of plays a part in the broader ecosystem of oil and gas? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we were talking a little bit before the podcast about how, you know, uh, Liberty, the Liberty companies headed by, I'm blacking on his name. What's it? John Malone. John, John Malone. Malone. Yeah. yeah. The Malone star. There is, and you know, shout to Joe, Joe Greenblatt, one of our favorites. He mentions them in his dumbly titled book, You Can You Can Be a Stock oh, Market Genius. that's a genius. fine title. But anyway, he mentions John Malone and how investors who sort of were able to follow along with what John Malone was doing as he was doing all these shareholder transactions, spinning things off, buying things, using unusual earnings metrics. If you're able to follow along the complexity, there was actually excess return available to you if you did the homework. And that brings me to the point here where we open ourselves up to getting cooked. We've gotten cooked in the past in the comments for similar things where we say, look, we haven't done that deep of research on this to try and understand every single line item in Kinder Morgan's statements. We don't understand all the subsidiaries. We know there are a lot of them. It's possible that, you know, Rich Kinder and management for Kinder Morgan is a highly sophisticated person who's who specializes in structuring entities in ways that are optimized for shareholder returns. That's the kind of John Malone story. And so that would be my first counter is like, Maybe management is smarter than us and or more has more information than us. And it's actually works to shareholders advantage. People who invest in Kinder Morgan are sophisticated enough to understand all this stuff. And they're therefore rewarded for it with great return prospects going forward. So why is the complexity necessary to get directly to your question? Maybe it's Due to regulatory and other issues, management's found these arbitrage opportunities that are actually generate value for shareholders. That's my best case for it. I want to just go tangentially here into Richard Kinder for a second, because first of all, he's a he's an Enron alum. He was a COO at Enron until he left in 96. And recently... Some of the recent stories have been about insider buys, and so I just wanted to look at that because I was aware they were about him buying shares in his own company, and I just think this is hilarious having just pulled it up. So he's been buying a decent number of shares, bought 175,000 shares in the end of March and then beginning of beginning of April, so did it two separate times. That's 0.07% of his stake. He owns point. $8 billion of shares as is, but he had to file a form for yesterday. He bought 200 shares in his own company, which is amounts to, what is that? 200 times 20, we're $4,000. He had to file a form for, for filing a $4,000 purchase when he has $4.8 billion of shares. I just think that's a, uh, 
interesting position sizing on that that order that he made yesterday. I think he might have um, got him more bang for his buck there if he had bought a little bit more. Daniel, you've never had some just a. Do you only make hundred million dollar <laughs> transactions when you buy shares, Daniel? Maybe he's maybe he's you know he's got his he's got his little personal. What are those called? His PA. <laughs> Just doing a little trading on the side. I don't know. I mean, maybe he had a limit order at 19.75 and it only just it hit just, that for a second. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. His broker was like, well, <laughs> I'll fill you where I, I can. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> we feel you. Yeah, then they charge you twice. It's Rich, just not fair. Rich, we get it. It's, yeah. The fees are killing him. <laughs> He's getting churned and burned. <laughs> He's not He's, getting best execution. That's for sure. The market makers, those market makers, the MLMs are after him. I, I. So I mean, I think what you're getting at is we've seen in the past, or there's kind of this theory that management will do shareholder signaling through transactions. the The fact of buying is interpreted by investors as bullish for the stock sort of irrespective of the quantity or the relative exposure. And we see that on Seeking Alpha relatively often, whether it's insiders or whether it's large institutional funds, that it's bullish that people have bought at X price. And, you know, there are other possible explanations for that. Like, for example, his (laughs) theoretical limit order getting partially filled. But it's, but, you know, the, the more cynical perspective is that sometimes management will make small dollar transactions in the stock to as a signal to investors that may have actual low economic information value, but nevertheless will be interpreted by stockholders as, as a positive sign. So I guess, I don't know if we can rule that out here, but I, I think that maybe that's where you were going with this. Yeah, I think. I mean, I was. I more just thought it was funny that really tiny one. But yeah, even the. I mean, he spent three point five million dollars over the last two weeks. Which, who are we to sell somebody that their three point five million dollars is just to paint the tape? But it is small in the context. So I think I would just put that in appropriate context. I think the yeah, other, yeah. and also like without again knowing all the details it is his company his name is on the company and it didn't go so well like the fact that he's bullish again if you're talking about biases i'm sure as we all do i'm sure he has quite a few here and so it's interesting i would i suppose if you're a shareholder you'd rather him buying than not right but i'm not sure that i would put too much weight on that and it still it still doesn't explain to me, especially because, like you said earlier, so much of their presentation is oriented towards, I mean, it's an investor presentation, of course, but there's still that sort of, I still come back to something like a DCF where the DCF value is something like three times the free, or two and a half times the free cash flow value. And it's like, okay, what are you, what game are we playing here? What are you trying to get across by, you know, and and just the the other slide that we both kind of, well, you, I think you pointed out yesterday when we were talking about this, uh, but the slide where they show how long, 
Slide 49, is, famous slide. That, no, I remember, I, I was talking about 25, oh, which is oh. the one with the investment multiples. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Okay. The fact that they sort of have this estimate of how long it will take for us to get our EBITDA back on the capital we invested, which just doesn't make sense to me as like it, except as an effort to obfuscate, it's unclear why you would even bother with this because you're investing capital from assets raised through debt. So the interest matters and- I suspect there's some ongoing maintenance at the very least. And probably like there's, I think either there's a limit to what the, what the growth plan is. There aren't going to be that many more pipelines to be built, or you're going to have to continue to invest CapEx to replace pipelines over time to grow new. Like it just doesn't seem like it makes sense as the, and so when a company uses a sort of mismatch like that, it, raises a yellow flag at least it raises a concern what's you know what i mean like yeah i mean you pointed it out so yeah let's let's look at (laughs) let's go to slide 25 maybe people could follow along if they want or we'll post it in the article but there are like layers to to how to the amount of management sort of presentation decisions that get layered on top of each other so first of all you have the choice to use ebitda as the operating metric, which as you mentioned, has some issues when you're in an asset intensive and debt financed project, namely that depreciation matters when you have pipes, right? Pipes break, they have useful lives. They're not around forever. You can't pretend like they're around forever. You have to replace them eventually. And as you said, interest interest expense matters when you finance projects with debt. So that's one layer where we're kind of like, okay, that's the justification for the capital allocation decisions. Then on top of that, they're pegging this. The original estimate was that the project cost 5.8 times their estimated EBITDA. And then I guess what they're holding constant is the original outlay. But now they've reviewed the actual EBITDA, which is a metric that has some potential flaws. And they're saying that the results were better than they originally forecast. So you're using a a, strength, a metric that we have questions about. You're anchoring on a previous estimate for how good a deal you were going to get. And now you're saying that the deal turned out to be better than you expected. It's just... I think there's just a lot of, this goes back to your question of why does this have to be so complicated? And I think here we see that the, the, these are, these are choices that management is making in terms of presenting the results. And there are layers to this where someone who is trying to make this comparable to other investment opportunities would have to do a lot of unpacking to decipher what was going on. Well, and it's worth just mentioning that the whole sector, like these are common, I don't, we're using Kinder Morgan as our example, but I think these are common metrics to use in the sector, but that is also part of the issue with, for, we'll shout out Mr. Skilling on Twitter, that's at Mr. Underscore Skilling, not Jeff Skilling, it's a parody, but 
It's a one of the MLP accounts. They just did a big tournament, March Madness themed tournament tournament for the worst MLP or the worst midstream company or can't remember exactly what the theme was, but you know, Kinder got knocked out pretty early. I, I checked the bracket, but <laughs> which is <laughs> we have all these questions about Kinder and the bracket. Actually, <laughs> they were early round knockout. It's kind of tells you something maybe about the industry. Uh, maybe not. Right? Yeah that that's what I was getting at. I'm glad you cut in because that that's all I wanted to say is it tells you something about the industry. And so it, it, shout out to Mr. Skilling for the entertaining and high quality work that he or she does but the that that was all i wanted to say okay so i think we're getting at this just to kind of recap we have all these related subsidiaries they're actually i guess minor minority stakeholders in not only the projects that kinder morgan undertakes but potentially in kinder morgan itself that are entitled to certain amounts of the net income. In any case, that's one layer. There are all these sort of related affiliated company transactions that make it much harder to evaluate where the economic value derived from the business operations is going to be allocated. Then on top of that, you have management accounting decisions using metrics like EBITDA and using sort of projected value payback period of investment versus current expected payback value of investment. All these sort of strange, at least to us as generalists, choices in how to present results to investors. It does, it does you know, maybe we're going to sound a little whiny. We're probably going to get cooked in the comments, but it's like, on the other hand, I know that Exxon is not a perfect comp here. But if you look at the first several pages of Exxon's 10K, there are efforts made to try and make the results a little bit more, or at least they seem a little more, in my opinion, digestible. You sort of have the assets are all consolidated into categories that are then, you know, you don't worry about whether there's a related party transaction. They just consolidate things together and their oil field assets are presented as sort of one thing. And then their financial statements are presented in a much more standard format. And I think that matters to me, at least when I'm evaluating an investment opportunity. I think I am looking for things that are just so clear to me just to make it easier on myself. But I think that there is a question that you need to ask yourself as an investor in one of these companies, like, am I up to this task of deciphering and how much of this might be? There are opportunities. We don't know if management is taking advantage of them or not, but the more layers of complexity you add on, the more opportunities there are for management to put a certain kind of spin on the information. Well, it, it just feels like a big it's like how the best writing is the clearest and the most concise for most people. And to me, this the presentation is a 52 pages of jazz hands of sort of really putting spin on the ball to try to look 
it's it, it's ironic that it's investor oriented in the theme of look at our dividend, look at our cash flow, etc. But with so many sort of steps in the way, whereas what I think investors, you know, invest and investors are adults. They want to they want you to speak straight to them. I think you know. I th- I think that's a it's obviously a very general statement. But it's interesting when you look at the comments on our recent Kerner Morgan articles, and there's a cadre of commenters who were bullish on Kinder, owned shares through the share price collapse in 2015 and they talk about getting kindered and so there's and i think our commenters unfortunately sometimes it happens with these sort of dividend herd stocks where you have to learn by personal experience but i think our commenters like when you look through that it's clear that they've learned that experience and that at least for this story they have learned lessons from what happened last time around and I just I don't know that that's coming across in all the analysis and in the willingness to take the slides as is the willingness to take the the adjustments as is if we go to and maybe we can sort of hit this as our last note slide forty nine the famed slide forty nine from yeah the KMI presentation my favorite slide <laughs> um, for those of you who are following you will see what we're talking about. I'm not going to read every line, but we're talking about it's a reconciliation. It's the gap reconciliation. So they show you how you get from net income to distributable cash flow, how you get to segment EBDA before certain items. Or same certain I like items. that. They're, they were responsible and included interest in taxes. <laughs> <laughs> really, really like, conservative I, I like choice the, like, there. <laughs> I like the full family of the EBDA. Yeah, You've got the EBDA... <laughs> EBITDA, you've got the their cousin OIBDA, operating EBITDA. EBITDA, um, adjusted. Yeah, and they have adjusted EBITDA in here. So they, they do have it. And it's like, and so it, they, they've got, right. So they break, they actually do break down certain items to some degree, but it's still confusing. They have, they have just on this page, footnotes go up to the letter K. So I think that kind of gets, and they like, the footnotes, they at some points add back the, I think the non-controlling interest thing, they deduct the non-controlling interest, but then they add it back in, they add some part of it back, but not other parts. It doesn't make, like they give themselves, this was the one that I thought was strange. Distributable cash flow. they add back certain items, which includes the non-controlling interest portion of certain items, which... I'm not, I'm still struggling with a certain items thing, but they add that back, but then they don't add, they remove maintenance CapEx, what they call sustaining CapEx, but they don't remove the non-controlling portion of sustaining CapEx. I don't know. It just seems like they, they, they take something out, which looks good. Okay. They're being conservative, $240 million of non-controlling interest portion in certain items you go down from net income, they subtract that out. And then one line later, after net income available to common stockholders, they add it right back in on total certain items. Like, why'd you take it out in the first place? What was I supposed to do? Like, it's, it, is, it is bizarre to an outsider look at this. I do want to flag hurricane damage. They take out 24 million of hurricane damage. 
which I think that's just a small point and it's a little bit of a socialist hat moment for me, but it seems like our climate is becoming more and more amenable to hurricanes. Maybe that's not a non-recurring item. I don't know. It's a it's an account, accounting choice, but and it's a small one relative to everything else, but I just wanted to throw that in there. But I think that's that's just one set. We've we're already baffled and that's just one set of adjustments. Then if you go down the line from there, depletion, depreciate, depreciation, amortization, they add all that back in, and that's larger than net income by itself. Net income is $1.9 billion. Depletion, depreciation, amortization is $2.4 billion. So that's pretty, that's like people like David Einhorn, people who are sort of in the Graham and Dodd school of value investing. They talk about when the disconnect between adjusted earnings and gap earnings gets really wide, then that's a time to really start focusing on gap and traditional conservative financial metrics. The impact of this is potentially really substantial. If you have $1.9 or $2 billion in net income and Kinder Morgan's market cap is 45 billion, then that's what, 22 and a half times earnings. And if you have, if you're going to measure it against distributable cash flow of 4.7, then it's 10 times earnings. So it's like a huge valuation decision, which of these you're going to present because it changes the multiple by a factor of two. Right. And, and I think which, you know, I think if I, I, I was sort of, I did look free cash flow was just to go back to that for a second is 2.1 billion. So they're trading at about. It tracks net income um, a lot closer than distributable cash flow, which I think is. Right. Yeah. And so it trades at about 21 times free cash flow, which, you know, not crazy. They say their dividends going up over coming years, like. They're investing, whatever else. That's not a terrible price. But again, it's just like, okay, but why did you send me around the mulberry bush to get there? Why do I have to deal with all these, with this, with these metrics that don't, I don't really know that, you know, you can't just start distributing $4 billion in cash. Like you, they won't be able to do do that. It's not going to be sustainable. And that- That I think goes to another thing that's kind of a potential. One of the things they talk about in this presentation a lot is their kind of growth and financing, finding new projects. And they're finding projects that have higher expected returns than their cost of capital, which should be of value to shareholders. One concern that I have, especially when you're subtracting out depreciation and amortization from the results you present to investors is it creates an incentive to pursue additional projects and make additional investments because that the depreciate the depreciation amortization charge one of the things it does is it penalizes additional investment by creating additional operating expenses that are related to the fact that you financed a new capital project if you're able to convince investors that those penalties don't matter then you're going to be just have this great incentive to finance additional projects because in the accounting, it doesn't look like it costs you anything 
on an earnings basis. So then that's a real concern when your balance sheet is expanding and you, even though your asset value correlation with oil markets isn't perfect, it is, we've seen, vulnerable to a downturn. And the more you're kind of financing these transactions with a lot of upfront investment, there's a prospect of everything going south. And, you know, we've talked a little bit, it's actually on slide 49, they have a reconciliation of net debt to adjusted net debt, which is, thank you for that. That's a billion dollar adjustment that takes seven lines to get there. It's, it's meaningful because you run real, you run financial risk and you run operating risk and you're, you're encouraged by use of these metrics as a manager to pursue additional growth opportunities when maybe if you looked at it from a different perspective, they wouldn't seem quite so attractive. When we go back, that gets us back to slide 25, where it's like 5.8 times adjusted EBITDA. But if your EBITDA is basically blowing out your net income and adjusting it upwards by 2.5x, then really the project is, you know, 12 times net income. So that's, that's a, it's a real concern that expanding the balance sheet in this way without paying heed to all the depreciation and amortization charges, which are large, creates, creates a risk that the rug gets pulled out from under you. Well, and I think that's where it's sort of the takeaway that I would have here. And it's like, and that's where, I don't know, I guess we started with some articles and I don't, I don't want to speak for you. I was a little disappointed to see how much there was still taking management at face value. I think you're always, even the best management, you should be careful about taking face value. And it's, I do it. I'm not saying that I'm not trying to cast any stones here, but it's, you have a company where you've had events in the past that have raised questions about management and you've, and where you can viscerally see what happens if you don't do your own work. And if you don't sort of think through what, what, why are they presenting things these way, this way, what does it mean? So I think that's something that just really pops here. And, you know, I'm, we haven't talked about the underlying future of oil and gas. We haven't talked about beyond acknowledging that it's pro- production is probably going to grow in the U.S. We haven't really gotten into the sort of tenets of the thesis, and you know, it's and look, and I think the multiple is that not crazy once you get down to the normal metrics. But the effort that goes into presenting these metrics and the effort that goes into highlighting them as the sort of things that you should look at. To me, it is a concern. And I think that's something that when you're trying to read sort of between the lines to read human behavioral clues and incentives and that sort of thing, that stands out to me. And that's something that I would just watch for as as an investor with, you know, when you see a company that's putting in a lot of work to not that gap, gap accounting is not perfect. It, it represents one state of the world. But when you're putting this much sweat into changing where I should be looking, I think that's something to watch out for. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of a simplistic way of thinking about it. And I use this a lot in my own, like a, 
uh, when we're deciding what to do with content at Seeking Alpha, which is a much lower stakes capital allocation decision than the billion dollar projects that Kinder Morgan undertakes. But it's like, and it's also with, you know, my interpersonal relationships and everything. It's like, if, if your explanation starts to get long enough, you ought to just stop explaining and start looking at your conclusion and see whether your process was good. You get into a situation where you have a parlay of one layer of explanation on top of another layer of explanation on top of another one. Each layer creates a risk that you're wrong about that and it weakens the entire thesis. And so I think that's another just benefit of a more straightforward explanation is that it's it's potentially easier to see where you might have gone right or wrong and it makes it easier for you to reevaluate your thought process and i think that that's at play here and that's sort of taking the most benign approach to this is just like let's not make this complicated because it makes everyone's life harder at the end of the day it makes us harder to change our behavior it makes it harder for us to respond to what's actually going on on the ground i think that's kind of we, we got cooked a lot for not going into the nitty gritty of stuff, but, you know, a lot of the times you need to find out what matters and that what matters may be one or two really important things. And if you're diving in trying to find what matters among a lot of seemingly distracting items, then that's a, that's a concern. So I'm, that's my defense. My hot take is the defense of the straightforward story, I guess, which is a really, really form take but there we go it's an early spring take it's still early, early spring, spring. Yeah, early spring so Maybe. kinder morgan a lot of questions don't get kindered don't get don't kindered. Get- i think when you're when the verb out of your company is it has to do with shareholders and is not in a good way that's that's a pretty big big flag as well so what about kinder eggs do you like kinder eggs you know, there are all those you YouTube know, videos on of the unwrapping, or at least that was a fad a year ago. Y- yeah. And well, and aren't they like illegal in these somewhere in the U.S. or in the U.S.? Or isn't there the like kids s- might choke? See, there you go. Yeah. You might don't bite too eagerly into a Kinder, or <laughs> you might end up choking. Let me know if you want me to bring you some Kinders next time I come to the states, Mike. I, I if you can get them through customs and see what else you can get through customs while you're <laughs> while you're at it. <laughs> All right, let's let's okay, stop let's there. Leave it there. Okay. All right, Dan, you'll take <laughs> okay. care, man. Bye bye. Here's one last word from our sponsor, Oppenheimer Funds, about their podcast, Megatrends. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. I'm your host, Manita Huja. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. We hope you enjoyed this. Disagree with anything? Email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com or comment on the article version of this on Seeking Alpha. Agree with anything? We'd love to hear from you as well. We're going to be chatting with authors and experts on KMI and last week's topic, True Panion, over the coming weeks. Stay tuned for that. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thank you for listening, and see you next time on Behind the Ideas.